Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Well, hello, everyone, and uh, welcome back to GodPod. Or I say welcome back. I'm assuming that some of you out there have uh, listened to a few GodPods before. If that's the case, well, welcome back. If this is your first one, uh, welcome to GodPod. Or it may be that they just listen to them continuously and never leave. So you need to work on them back. That's a very frightening thought, isn't it? Very frightening thought. To non-stop GodPods. Is that the definition of hell? Or <laughs> Eternity. Yes. And, um, well, as you can probably guess from the voices already, we are the um, the original team. So uh, there is myself, Graham Tomlin. We have Jane Williams. Hello. And we have Mike Lloyd. We do. Hello. And uh, we are um, munching our way through a bit of banana cake. Well, we're not all eating the banana cake because Jane doesn't like bananas. Sadly. No. Probably better for me not to munch away. Betraying her evolutionary origins. <laughs> <laughs> it is very good banana cake, homemade. And uh, actually, we ought to give a special mention today to um, to Rebecca Reed, who has been um, helping to administer Godpod for a number of um, years now, and is, uh, this is the last one she's doing. So, thank you, Rebecca, for all the help you've given to us. The cake mainly. The cake mainly, and yes. everything else exactly. But um, we are um, uh, going to launch out as we always do on a number of fascinating questions that have been sent in by our our. Um, Listeners, and uh, we're going to start off with one from someone called uh, Chris Evers or Evers. Is it Evers or Evers? Well, Chris, whatever you how you pronounce your name. Um, and Chris says he has been listening to Godport since episode one. It's more than we have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never listen to them again afterwards, do you? No. Can't say I do. No. no. It's enough to speak them, isn't it, really? But <laughs> anyway, he says he finds the debate stimulating, but also drawn to the warmth and humor of Graham, Jane and Mike. What a sad life you must lead, Chris. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes. So anyway, he has a question about anti-Semitism in Christian thought. Uh, to take one example, Martin Luther published a vile book called On the Jews and Their Lies, in which he called for, among other things, the burning of synagogues and Jewish schools. While I appreciate the historic role of Luther in the Reformation, the fact that he was such a raging anti-Semite calls into question, at least for me, any ethical or theological authority he might have. In other words, given what he said about the Jewish people... I find it very near, very nearly impossible to respect him as a thinker. How do you, as theologians, deal with this? So I guess this is a question that is, um, I mean, partly historical, partly to think about Luther and himself and his attitude towards the Jews. But I guess it raises a wider question to do with um, thinkers from the past and how we assess them, particularly when they have views that we find quite objectionable for different reasons. Or indeed thinkers of the present and church leaders of the present. Do we have to be in total agreement with somebody in order to respect what they say? And of course, another related issue is kind of moral failings of particular thinkers. So one can think of a number of theologians who may have had a particular moral failing. Does a moral failing in a thinker mean that you don't really have to take seriously their their theology? So I guess those, those are the kind of um, complex of questions around this one. Luther is obviously over to you, Graham. Um, you clearly do respect Luther as a thinker. You've written about him. Um, why does his anti-Semitism not um, make that impossible for you? Well, I think a number of things to say about um, 
Luther's anti-Semitism. And Chris is, Chris is right. He did write some pretty horrible stuff about the Jews towards the end of his life. And um, in fact, actually, Luther's career in relation to the Jews is quite an interesting one. When, when he was younger, he actually wrote some quite positive things about uh, Jews and the Jewishness of Jesus. He, he actually wrote a, a text um, uh, emphasizing the Jewishness of Jesus as a positive thing. Um, there was a controversy early on in his life as to whether Christians should use Jewish scholars to establish the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. Some people said, no, no, they shouldn't because Jews were sort of cursed people. Um, but actually, actually, Luther was on the side of those who were saying, yes, yes, we should. We should actually use Jewish scholars because they have a great deal to teach us on, on in- encountering the, um, the Hebrew Testament. So, so you know, the early Luther was actually very positive towards um, the Jews and Jewishness, and uh, particularly the um, their role in helping understand the the, um, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, but it has to be said, towards the end of his life, he did seem to change his mind. I think that came from a number of reasons. One because he was very disappointed that uh, you know, the gospel had been de- de- rediscovered as he, th- as he thought and he expected the Jews to be converted to Christianity along with the, the rest of Western Europe and in fact they didn't and in fact he heard a few stories about Jews sort of seeking to convert Christians back to Judaism as it were and um, uh, began to kind of react against the Jews because of their refusal to kind of acknowledge the gospel a bit like he did towards the Catholic Church too and the other thing that what has to be said about Luther is he, he became a bit of a little bit of a sort of bitter old man, I think, um, partly out of this disappointment that people didn't share his kind of sense of wonder at the gospel that he'd rediscovered. And so he, um, he actually fires off volleys at all kinds of enemies towards the end of his time, not just the Jews, um, clearly the Pope, um, the Catholics more generally, some of the Catholic princes around. Uh, Luther was the, the genius at invective and uh, abuse. And um, so I think the first point I think I'd, I'd want to make is about the historical context of it. Um, the other point, of course, is that the, the, the reality is that many people at that time were anti-Semitic. The Middle Ages are a very different era from ours. And I think we also have to be a little bit cautious about um, that kind of historical anachronism of, of imposing um, perspectives from one culture onto another or not necessarily understanding the context out of which things come. That isn't saying that making an excuse for Luther's anti-Semitism, but it is seeking to put it in context. On the flip side of that, and I agree with that, but it's also true that you need to be alert to where this goes and where this ends up and and what it makes possible. Um, there's an extraordinary novel by George Steiner called The Portage to San Cristobal of A.H., uh, which imagines Hitler having not been killed in the bunker, having gone and lived in the Amazon basin and uh, finally been hunted down by Nazi hunters and tried. Uh, and the, mo- the most extraordinary chapter of the book is his defense at his trial. And he basically says, but this is where Western civilization has been leading. Uh, and Luther's one of the people he points to, but, uh, but only one. Um, and there's a sense in which, uh, yes, we must take it in its historical context, but we also need to s- see where this sort of thing leads and be very careful. And repent of it as a rep- sin. Yes. And, um, uh, and I think it is salutary to see um, 
how somebody who who's so inspired by the gospel and by his encounter with Christ, somebody like Luther, can have this total blind spot. Um, and I, I suppose one of the things that it, that um, that then we have to learn is that we probably have similar blind spots. We are none of us wholly converted. Um, and uh, and our our family prayer is forgive us our sins, which we have to say every day because we commit them every day, um, uh, and um, and sort of really try to learn from the frailties of 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 the past without necessarily saying that therefore nothing Luther said was of any theological value. Um, and I think it one of the things it teaches us is humility and perhaps. A willingness to be generous to people as they work out their own frailties, um, without, as Mike says, without condoning um, what Luther was part of, um, because that whole Christian way of treating Jews has been desperately um, shocking and um, wicked for the whole of our civilization and we as Christians need to acknowledge that, don't we? And our part in our huge part in that. I mean, I think. <laughs> There's another issue here, and that is whether one thing taints everything in a, in a person's outlook or life. Um, I mean, you get the same thing with with Wagner. I mean, Wagner wrote a highly anti-Semitic essay uh, in his life, um, and therefore a number of people will not listen to the music of Wagner. And I understand that, but on the other hand. <laughs> I love the music of Wagner. Um, and somehow one has, I think, to try to uh, take what is good um, while rejecting what is bad and enjoying what is good and benefiting from it, uh, while also not just rejecting what is bad, but also seeing what else might be tainted by it. So I, I, I would want to ask whether Luther's anti-Semitism also influences how he sees, reads the Old Testament and the, the relationship to the Old Testament and the New Testament and whether that's something that has led uh, perhaps liberal Protestant theologians and exegetes astray in the 19th century following Luther. So I, I think there are, there's a whole number of different things that one needs or to do. the other way around, you know, are there aspects of Luther's theology that sort of inevitably led to this? So, for example, I think it's much more problematic if, if, if the whole cast of a person's theology leads you towards an inevitable conclusion of something like anti-Semitism. Now, I, I think I'd want to defend Luther against that. It seems to me that um, there is so much about his, his theology, which is simply saying that what justifies us before God is nothing other than faith in Christ. It's not ethnicity. It's not negatively and positively. Actually, being a Jew or a Gentile does not qualify you for being justified before God. It is simply faith in Christ, which is something that Christians have always have always said. As I say, he he did emphasize the Jewishness of Jesus, and um, and in a sense, his understanding of law and gospel kind of sense that they they kind of need each other. And yes, there's a kind of intricate relationship between law and gospel. And law is not necessarily just Old Testament. Gospel isn't New Testament. But there's a kind of relationship there that they kind of need each other. And they're both from God in a kind of full, you know, in a proper way. So I think I'd want to argue it. It is a blind spot of Luther. It's not something you can ever really defend. I think it's a lost cause to try to somehow defend it and say it was a good thing in any way at all. Um, and it just reminds you that Every single Christian theologian, including the three of us around this 
little table have our weaknesses, our blind spots, our mistakes, our things that we don't see, which maybe in 100 years people will look back and if they ever do read our books in 100 years time (laughs) how on earth could they possibly think that Um, we think that of Luther at the time anti-Semitism didn't seem such a a great issue because a very different culture a very different society where Jews were often seen as a sort of you know internal threat to the cohesion of society and so on that isn't again to excuse it but it's to try and understand it in its its context still call it uh, part of the shameful history of Christian faith but um seeing it as a as an aberration in Luther's theology rather than an outcome from it and and find a way of learning from what he saw um while not turning a blind eye to his blind spots. I think generally it's true, isn't it? I mean, you can find pretty well any Christian theologian. You could probably find some part of their theology or their life that you don't really approve of very much. And maybe especially so the more distant we are from them in time and, uh, and culture. And it seems to me if we go down the line of saying, well, the minute we find something that we find really objectionable in someone's thinking, therefore that invalidates the whole of the rest of what they say, then we won't really listen to anybody. And also the same will be true that I can't really expect anyone to listen to me if uh, you know, if I'm saying that you know everything that I say and do has to be absolutely perfect and right for anyone to for me to have any authority, then or, or as, as a teacher or anyone to say that, then there's no future in that line of thinking. Interesting, the word authority came up in in the question, um, uh, implying that Luther has some authority, and while to a certain extent that might be true of the Lutheran Church, um, it's it's not by and large true for Christians as a whole. The, the, the councils and the creeds have some authority. The scriptures have authority. God and Christ in particular are the sources of authority. Any other kind of authority is is very derivative and subs, uh, subsequent to that, I think. Subject to judgment, yes. And subject but, to judgment. But I suppose the greater the theologian and their impact, the more these flaws seem to, to show up. Yeah, and particularly in Luther, because he was a very, who's a character of extremes. He always expressed himself with great passion, which is why he's such an interesting person to read, which is why he's never dull. You know, there are theologians who are much more careful in what they write and, and, and so on, but he's never like that. He, he always speaks from the heart and wears his heart on his sleeve, and therefore he's always interesting to read, even when you disagree with him. But it just, it, I think it's, it's a kind of reminder that every, every time you read theology, you read it critically and thoughtfully. Um, you don't take it, you know, this person says it, therefore it must be right. Uh, and there is a bit of that in the church more generally. There you is. know, there's certain people who, you know, you think, oh, here's my great authority and whatever they say must be right. One needs to read it carefully and critically. Even Jane, I think, might agree that Augustine had similar Absolutely. blind spots. Yep. I mean, the use of uh, legal force um, and state force against people he disagreed with theologically, mm-hmm. compelled conversion. Uh, there's some quite embarrassing and again that the impact of that is greater because he was such a great theologian yes 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 well thank you chris for your um, really fascinating question and um we're going to go on to another one from um uh, from matthew matthew banks who writes a question um about uh well this is kind of linked into the series we've done a little while ago on uh, on heresies 
And um, it's kind of continues that with um, this question. He said, my late lamented dad was a great fan of universalism and the idea that God's love is so enormous that we are all going to heaven. Uh, he said, in the same way, my dad always told us that whatever you do, my kids, though you break my heart, leave me feeling infuriated and estranged from you, I will always forgive you and welcome you home in the end because I love you more than you'll ever know. I will never deny my fatherhood and the love that goes with it. It's a very comforting theology, says Matthew, and a lovely way to be parented. But I'm just wondering, is it heretical? Is it a heresy? So universalism, the idea that all will be saved, is that a heresy? How do we view that particular strand of Christian thinking. I find that the example in that question a very interesting one because it assumes that because this father is always willing to forgive and welcome somebody home that the person will then come home and that's the flaw in the argument isn't it the fact that um, uh, the questioner's father is always there willing to, to welcome people home doesn't actually make people come home. It might make them more ready to, but it might not if they never find out that the father is waiting there with open arms, you know, if they never choose to come home, then the fact that the father is willing to forgive makes no difference, does it? And, and your phrase is also very significant. That it doesn't make them come home. To make them come home implies uh, a denial of freedom. <laughs> And, and and that's, I think, the danger within universalism is that it doesn't pay sufficient respect to human freedom. It's one thing to long for all people uh, to come to know the love of God. It's another thing. It's one thing to work for that and to pray for that, but to assert it as a certainty. I think. It has the danger of, as I say, not paying sufficient respect to human freedom um, and to declare in advance what the outcome of people's free choices is going to be. So prodigal son stories don't always end up with the son coming home. They did in that story. But there are all kinds of other stories where the son or daughter chooses not to return. We don't know, for example, if the rich young ruler did sell all yep. that he had and sure. follow Jesus or not. Yep. We don't know. And the older brother in the, yep. in the prodigal son story, what happened to him? Did he eventually repent of his rejection of his brother and his father and come back in and join the party? Or did he go out into the darkness and never return? We just don't know. And in, in an important way, if God is in the end going to compel us all, to come home, then it's quite hard to see why he doesn't do that right at the beginning. Um, it's quite hard and, to make save sense. all the pain and <laughs> exactly. rubbish. Yes. It is quite hard to make sense of this history of, of trial and error and pain and joy. And if in the end, God is going to say enough, now now it's bedtime, come, come in. <laughs> um, because the history that we live does imply God's enormous respect for our freedom. It does seem to me there's a there's a kind of strange parallelism at two ends of this debate because on one end of the debate you've got the the kind of more extreme predestinarian view that God decides, which is a seems to be what Calvin says decides before all time he if like divides humanity into the damned and the and the elect and he chooses which they will be this idea of double predestination which you find a bit in Augustine and. Um, is there in, in, in Calvin too, and, and and that seems to give human beings no choice whatsoever. That human choice has no role to play. God's 
purely decides. And in a funny kind of way, universalism is a kind of mirror image of that. It's a very different outcome um, because in universalism, everyone gets saved. But the same way, our choice doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, God decides. And so either extremes, you know, extreme predestination and universalism end up with a God who eventually forces us into, into his plans for us and doesn't respect our freedom. Tom Torrance expressed that rather pithily when he said there are two equal and opposite errors in this area. One is to say uh, that Christ died for all and therefore all are saved. The other is to say some are saved and therefore Christ died for some. And they both have the same presupposition, which is that what God wants, he gets. And and that, uh, again, doesn't pay enough respect to human freedom in my view. And the, um, I, mean, the, I guess the theologian who's quite interesting on this one is, is of course, Karl Barth, who, who, who sort of critiqued Calvin's predestinarianism by saying that, you know, because Calvin had this idea that there is this hidden decree that before the beginning of the world, God had made this hidden decree. That was almost the kind of first move of God, this hidden decree. To, to elect the, the saved and to reject the damned. And, um, of course, Karl Barth says, well, actually, no, no, God's first decision is to be for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the elect. He is the chosen one. So actually, rather than talking about an eternal decree by which certain people are damned and certain people are saved, we must talk about a prior decree, which is the chosenness of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, God's word towards us is yes. Now, some people would read into that by saying, well, Karl are you a universalist? By saying that, you know, that God's word towards humanity in Jesus Christ is a, is a, is a emphatic yes. And you could argue there's a kind of logic in that, but he would always, he never, he never went to that position and always denied that he was a universalist. He used to say, I am not, not a universalist. Yeah, that's right. Which, which is an, a nice way of, of saying, I, I hope and pray and long and work that it will be the case, but I'm not prepared to state it as a doctrine. Because that's taking away God's freedom. Because takes away God's freedom and yeah. our freedom. Yeah. 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 And ultimately, yeah, and Bart is the great theologian of God's freedom, yeah. that God is free to do as he, as he wishes. And he's not capricious. He is free to be himself in the fullest sense of that, that word. I think the instinct towards universalism does arise out of Christology, doesn't it? Out of what God does in Christ. Um, and we, I would want to say that God does in Christ everything that ever needs to be done about human sinfulness. Um, so that in that sense, anybody who does want to come home, <laughs> the door is open. Um, but that's not the same as saying everybody must, is it? But you can see why, if you fall in love with that vision of God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, you fall in love with that kind of, uh, that glorious theology of what God does for us in Christ, you, 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 you can't help longing for a universalist position, even if you can't entirely justify And, and the sense of the powerfulness of love, you know, because if you've experienced that, you know how... It can feel an overwhelmingly powerful thing. You cannot see. I mean, back to the Luther point, he could not quite get his head around why on earth the Catholic Church and the Jews didn't get what he saw. Um, but he couldn't make them see. And it, there's a kind of little bit of a parallel there, perhaps, in that that you know once once you've sort of seen the wonder and the power of uh, of divine love and how it sort of overwhelmed you as a person, and that is a very common Christian experience. You can't quite see how it could not do that for anybody else. 
but it seems to be that step of going to that final thing and saying, well, yes, everyone will be saved is just taking that step too far of restricting the freedom of of God and restricting the freedom of human beings at the same time. But I think the, the analogy that the question uses <clears throat> is uh, deeply right in, in all sorts of ways, that the analogy with the father always ready to welcome home and to forgive is, is right. And, and that's that's what we see in Christ. That's isn't what it? we see in Christ. That's what's there in the story of the prodigal son. That's what we experience. Universalism is often, you know, it's, as you say, it's inspired by Christology. It's also inspired by compassion, I think, and it comes out of a good instinct. This longing that people will know the love of God in Christ forever and ever in eternity, and. Um, so therefore, it's not, that's why, I, you know, I, is it a heresy? That's a kind of tricky bit. You know, if there can be such a thing as a good heresy, it probably is <laughs> a good heresy because it comes out of really quite good instincts. And um, uh, you know, so, so it, excuse me, it, it is something which, you know, you, in a, every Christian would, surely we would love it to be the case. You know, we would, we would long for everyone. As the scriptures say, you know, God wants everyone to repent and come to salvation. And if we don't long for that, then we ourselves are not yet quite converted. If we if we are yeah. happy to think there will be some people out while we're in, then there's work to be done on our own theology and yes, our understanding I, of God. I, I, think. I can think of a few. <laughs> <laughs> there's proof there's still work to be done on me. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. Well, look, um, thank you very much, Matthew, for your um, really interesting question about um, universalism. Um, I think that's all we've got time for today. Uh, we have um, um, done two really interesting questions on um, theology and error and blind spots and anti-Semitism. We know a lot about error and blind spots. And you do notice that Graham said the questions were interesting. <laughs> I, I noticed that. <laughs> well, I'll leave it to people listening to work out whether the answers were of any interest whatsoever. Um, but anyway, we will go back to eating our banana cake, or at least Mike and I will. Yes. Uh, but until next time, it's uh, goodbye from me. And from me. And from me. That was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.